From Fierce Healthcare, I'm Teresa Carey, and this is Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I understand the system is stressed now, but we need to go back to first do no harm as the first priority, not something that we only do if the balance sheet tells us it's a good idea. That was Michael Millenson on patient safety and quality outcomes. Stay with us because we'll hear more from him later. But first up, let's talk about Q4 earnings and the financial trends we're seeing. As companies wrap up their fourth quarter financial reports and nonprofit providers begin to release their own data, the healthcare industry is beginning to boil down to the haves and have-nots. Insurers comprise the former, the haves. Major national plans are bringing in record profits and expansive revenues as they diversify their business lines. Providers, meanwhile, continue to feel the pressure of the pandemic and its lingering impacts on care costs, labor, and supply chain. Senior editor Paige Minimeyer, who covers payers, and staff writer Dave Moyo on Fierce's Provider Beat dive into the financial trends dominating their coverage of Q4 earnings. David, it's great to sit down with you and chat about this. Um, I feel Thanks. like we compare notes pretty much every quarter on earnings, and we end up seeing really a, a tale of two cities, I guess, in healthcare. You know, one where major payers are really thriving and providers are, are struggling in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, from your perspective on the provider side, I mean, what are some of the top line trends that, that you've been seeing? I mean, it's definitely a back and forth between revenue, which in some ways is a bit of a proxy for volumes or the end result of volumes, I should say, and then the rising costs. And it's sort of a race one to the other, which one's going up higher. And for last year or two, it seems like cost has really been, cost and expense has really been uh, winning that race a bit. Um, in terms of recent trends with a fourth quarter uh, numbers starting to come out, Definitely seeing revenues and volume side is playing a little bit of catch up here. Uh, a lot of the comments that I saw in the earnings uh, presentations were a lot of, well, we're not as good as we were last year, maybe, but our uh, volumes numbers are going up and we're happy about that. And that's what everyone should look at, not some of these other uh, cost things that are going on. <laughs> Labor issues have been a major drag on providers' finances for some time, especially dating back to, to issues related to COVID. You know, you covered a provider survey just in the past couple of weeks that found, you know, workforce issues are still really top of mind for, for executives at, at health systems. You know, are, are you getting a sense that they're seeing a, a light at the end of the tunnel on this or are we kind of in for the long haul on these labor issues? Definitely some light and some long haul. You know, things were at their worst near the top of the year. There were some COVID callouts um, among hospitals, workforces. And then localized surges of COVID would sort of force a lot of providers to call out, um, providers, the actual people on the ground, to call out. And then the organizations had to turn to contract labor to try and fill those gaps or capacity issues in worst scenarios. Um, there's then a bit of a lag because a lot of those contracts will run several weeks or a couple months. So even after maybe they're their surge is over and they're back in the clear. They still have the contract labor on the books for a little bit. So it was sort of a general tale 
of in the T-A-I-L tail, I should say, um, in that the beginning of the year had it the worst and it's just been gradually steady uh, releasing some pressure a bit. HCA's CEO, Sam Hazen, described the full year and in particular labor as a tale of two halves. And it's definitely the first half was still COVID craziness. Second half, we're trying to return to some normal trends. And we're going to use HCA maybe as a uh, good example just because of their size and that they just reported. But um, they said their full year hiring was up 6% year over year. And in the fourth quarter, their nurse turnover was down 26% compared to the prior year's average. Now, a lot of that is just because they have um, some centralized hiring initiatives going on and staffing programs that they rolled out during the spring and the summer. But at the same time, we've seen some uh, federal BLS numbers that are showing that over the course of the entire year, there's 580,000 new jobs added just to healthcare um, across all of 2022. At the end of the day, though, um, those costs and that need is still definitely amplified compared to where it was in pre-pandemic or a couple of years ago. State hospital organizations have been talking a lot about how some of their specific uh, facilities, uh, member facilities, or certain markets still have too few workers. And even HCA, the example before, acknowledged even with their uh, Q4 numbers that were looking promising, they still weren't up to full capacity due to labor constraints. So just to round it up, some light, some long haul. Um, we just we just touched on this, but you know, broadly, payers have been able to shrug off a lot of the worst of the effects of the pandemic, and we can maybe dig into that a little later. But providers definitely haven't been <laughs> quite so lucky in, in that respect. Um, you know, what effect are you seeing? Maybe that the continued costs and impacts of COVID are having on their finances. You know, beyond the, the labor challenges that we were just discussing. So I would say. Um... It somewhat depends on the size of the hospital health system that we're talking about for like the very large major systems. Um, it's definitely fueling uh, efficiency pushes and some tighter purse strings. But I really wouldn't say that it's sidelining some of the long-term strategic pushes. I'll use Common Spirit as an example. They just uh, announced a $415 million operating loss, which is a negative 2.6% margin for the six months from uh, last summer to December 31st. And at JP Morgan at the, in January, we saw that they were making a big deal about slowing some of their spending and uh, merger and acquisition type activity just since you know we got to focus on how much money we're losing. That being said, about a week or so ago, they were very busy talking about their new five-hospital acquisition in Utah from Stewart Health and some other activities that definitely suggest that they're not full-on sidelining their strategic pushes. That said, the larger organizations were starting to see a few reorganizations and administrative layoffs to cut down some of those costs. Uh, the big one in the middle of last year was Providence, which has just been bleeding money for a couple of years. But uh, in the past month or so, we've seen Jefferson Health and Adventist Health both announce that they were going to shuffle around their structure, make things flatter, and have some administrative staff layoffs to try and cut down costs. Now, when you look at the smaller and rural organizations, I think it's much more of a limitation on what they're able to do. Uh, we see the Kaufman Hall industry reports about approximately half of hospitals ending the year with negative margins. And a lot of those are facilities that were already facing an uphill battle and may have depleted their cash reserves during the bulk of COVID-19 response. 
Some hospitals have been telling stories of reducing capacity or shutting, shuttering low-margin services to combat higher expense tabs. Chartist Group just had a recent report saying that, or highlighting how the federal relief dollars for the past couple of years have largely staved off a lot of closures of rural hospitals. Uh, those funds are dried up, and now the group is projecting a jump in closures for 2023. I think that's some of the um, potential outcomes we could be seeing across 2023 on those smaller and or rural facilities that just don't have the flexibility of larger organizations. Um, you know, you mentioned Common Spirit, and while we have most of what we need to look at for for the for profit health systems, it's still a little early for for the nonprofits to be releasing some of their quarterly data. Um, you know, but you track these every quarter. I mean, what are you seeing maybe as some of the performance differences when you're comparing, you know, how for-profit providers are performing rather than the nonprofit systems? I mean, when we're looking at the big name systems, it's definitely that the for-profits are having a better go at it. Um, HCA, I'll just, I'm going to throw some numbers out. HCA, 5.6 billion net income for the full year, which is down from 6.9 last year. Tenants, uh, 410 million net income down from 915 million. And community health systems, 46 million down from 230 million. Though I'll note they finished very strong. They were, uh, in a rough spot for most of the year. And the CHS's fourth quarter was pretty good. Now that's down from last year, but they're still bringing in money and maybe not making investors thrilled, but, you know, making them all right. (laughs) But then when we go and look at some of the larger nonprofits, Kaiser Permanente reported a 4.5 billion net loss for the full year, and a lot of that is um, some stock investments uh, activity to do. So worth noting, it's 1.3 billion operating loss as well. Commonspear we already mentioned 20, 221 million net loss for the past six months since they're on a different cycle. Mass General Brigham reported 2.3 million billion net loss for 2022 and 432 million operating loss. We're still waiting for, like you said, the fourth quarter and full year numbers for a good chunk of the nonprofits. But if we're looking at the third quarter numbers, it was a lot of back and forth just from system to system. Just looking at operating incomes, Baylor, Scott & White, Sutter, both reporting over $200 in quarterly for the third quarter. And on the other end of the spectrum, Bon Secours, Mercy, Health, and Providence still struggling with uh, $100 in losses through the quarter. There's a lot of differences in how for-profits and non-profit systems uh, go about their business. And one thing I think we should mention when we're talking about the differences between their net incomes at the end of the year, non-profits are dealing with a lot more charity care. They're dealing with a lot more uh, government-insured patients. And those bring less revenue in, yet they still have roughly the same expenses, sometimes more for certain government and charity patients. They'll have higher expenses. So in a lot of cases, it's always a bit more of an uphill battle for the nonprofit systems and hospitals compared to the for-profits, but there's definitely a difference in the financial numbers we've been seeing at the end of the year. Supply chain issues are you know, a major problem nationally across industries, not just healthcare, and providers have been feeling the squeeze there. Um, how are you seeing them adapt to this new normal? I mean, some of it's what I was talking about before, taking a harder stance on their cost reduction efforts and being a little bit smart, smarter about their general spending. Um, should be worth noting, though, that consolidation is a factor or a trend in the industry that's getting a lot of scrutiny. And when these systems or 
uh, hospitals are announcing their mergers or acquisitions, one of the go-to things they always point to is we are seeing increased costs and consolidating and becoming a larger organization will allow us to cut down on supply costs because of you know economies of scale, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's definitely a approach that the industry is aware of and considering, and we're maybe seeing some M and A trends as a result of that. Also, seeing some centralized uh, purchasing distribution along the larger health systems that, again, are able to work on economies of scale, scale and really take advantage of that. That's enough about health systems. Why don't we talk about these uh, payers that are really just racking in the dollars? Uh, <laughs> Paige, <laughs> um, how would you say that the big payers are looking ahead to profitability in the new year after some of the results that they've seen in this past year? Is there a feeling that good times are slowing down or these companies really expect the train to keep on rolling? Yeah, I think there is kind of largely an expectation that the the good times will keep rolling. If you look at their guidance, all of these companies, the six major national insurers, are, are expecting to increase their profitability in 2023. And a specific example I'll give is, is Centene, which they've really been focused on the past year and a half or so, where they've been, you know, slimming down their footprint and kind of really trying to invest in and focus on the most important business lines and the ones that are really going to generate the most revenue and profitability for them. Um, and Humana similarly has been focusing on an internal initiative to to drive greater value within the company after they <laughs> basically fell flat on their face during open enrollment for Medicare Advantage last year. So that was a huge headline in the beginning of 2022 where they had to basically cut their projections in enrollment growth by a third <laughs> to a third of what they were expecting. And they were kind of the only company to really trip on that. Uh, but the companies that are the most diversified, you know, are the most direct to the, to the continued growth. Obviously, United Health Group is the most diverse and sprawling company included here by far. Um, and to the surprise of exactly no one, they blow their competitors out of the water in terms of profitability. And that's thanks in large part to the continued growth at their Optum subsidiary, which is the <laughs> diverse and sprawling part of an already huge, massive Fortune 5 company. And what about the Medicare Advantage market? How's that playing into their strategy for the coming year? I don't think the MA market is going away, obviously. They're at about 31 million people enrolled in Medicare Advantage compared to traditional you know, Medicare. It's about half of the program. But in the most recent AEP or annual enrollment period, a lot of these companies felt a little short of where they were hoping to be, kind of their growth trajectory. So I could see them kind of cutting back on their expectations of growth in, in Medicare. Um, but the ACA exchanges, by comparison, are really growing at an exponential rate, their record enrollment kind of in the past two years. So I could see maybe them, some of these companies looking at that market and saying that there's um, maybe untapped growth potential that they haven't really been focusing on and could maybe look at, you know, footprint growth and kind of putting more of a spotlight on the, the exchange market. So let's maybe uh, connect the two sides of the coin here. <laughs> on the provider side, we've heard a lot of rumblings about contract negotiation clashes that could be coming since, you know, providers' expenses are going up and they're going to need more revenue coming in to try and offset that. Government uh, payments are on a lag, so they turn to commercial when they can, and which in some cases can be a little bit of the faster moving side of here. 
Have you heard anything in, from the payer side in terms of what they're expecting for a lot of these contract negotiations in the coming year or so? Yeah, I do think that's a pretty huge concern for them, although I will say it wasn't major focus as you're looking at the current quarter and then in, in the earnings reports that we've got. Um, and I think it's an issue that is different depending on the, the payer you're looking at, obviously. Um, their size, reach, and influence can really vary and they're in different markets. So I think they're maybe thinking about this at a more broad way than a provider would be just kind of looking at their where they are their own space. If you look at, say, Centene has Medicaid plans, Medicare Advantage plans, AC exchange plans across different markets, I think they maybe are less concerned about these individual type of negotiations. Um, but that said, <laughs> they're not known for being very magnanimous. <laughs> so I think that's why providers are, are girding their loins a little bit because they know that these health insurance companies are not usually willing to budge too much. So then there's uh, one other component of the payer market, and that's the insure techs of the startup payers, your Oscar Health, Clover Health, Bright Health, for instance. They're kind of a different story in terms of earnings and profitability this year, right? Yeah, yeah. The insure tech sector is, is way more volatile than the established payer market. You know, the, you have to be thinking that these are really young companies who have gone public in the past, you know, two years. They all kind of went public back to back to back in the course of about six months in 2021. <laughs> um, so they're still trying to find their way um, and figure out what being a public company means in, in their kind of milieu. You know, at the point that we're we're talking about this, you know, Clover Health and Bright Health haven't put out their Q4 or full year data, but Clover has operated at a loss this year and is kind of trying to find its footing with its tech stack and, and MA enrollment. You know, they picked a good market in Medicare for for really early growth, though, you know, as we talked about earlier, kind of the gains, these massive gains in enrollment in MA have shown signs that they're maybe slowing down. So it'll be kind of interesting to see if they feel like they need to pivot at all or if they're kind of really feeling comfortable with how their MA enrollment could, you know, continue to be a growth engine for them. Um, as we've covered pretty extensively, Bright Health has had a really rough year. Um, they're basically just bleeding money at this point um, and have kind of ditched huge parts of their insurance footprint to really focus in on their care model and health services business their stock price sunk so low earlier this year that the New York Stock Exchange threatened to delist them. <laughs> but um, they have a plan and executives are kind of feeling positive about where they're heading. Um, we do have Oscars numbers. <laughs> they posted a $609 million loss in 2022. Ew. The company has really been focusing on turning a profit by 2024, which is um, soon. It kind of seems like the age-old story that we see with all those tech startups in general, the how do you do the transition from growth mode to profit mode? It's kind yep. of reassuring <laughs> to see that even in the, what some would argue, the lucrative payer industry, that that hurdle still exists. I don't know. It's reassuring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they're definitely feeling just that same kind of squeeze that any tech startup has, has experienced for sure. Paige, this was fun. Yeah, it was great to catch up. Let's talk about patient safety. U.S. healthcare safety has significantly decreased since the pandemic started, 
our health system just wasn't resilient enough. We didn't have a solid safety culture and infrastructure that could withstand a big blow like the pandemic. And many people suffered. Let's hone in on one example, central line-associated bloodstream infections. These are serious infections that occur when germs enter the bloodstream through the central line. Before the pandemic, the healthcare system had made some real strides in patient safety. The CDC reported that central line-associated bloodstream infections dropped by 31% in hospitals in the five years before the pandemic. But they increased by 28% in 2020, right after the pandemic started. And that's only one example. So we need to think about creating a more robust healthcare system that can maintain high safety standards, even when we're hit with something as unexpected as a pandemic. Fierce's Frank Diamond talked with Michael Millinson, the president of Health Quality Advisors, about patient safety in the post-COVID era. Michael Millinson, thanks so much for joining us here on Podnosis. Um, you and I have known each other for a long time. My pleasure to be here, Frank. Absolutely. I know you can talk on a lot of subjects, but these days you're talking about patient safety. In one of our discussions, you mentioned the famous report to Error is Human. So 1999, that came out, and it, and it was it landed, as you know, as a bomb, like a bombshell saying from 44,000 to 98,000 people in the United States die each year because of preventable, preventable medical errors. And you mentioned it recently. Other healthcare men, uh, experts have mentioned it to me recently. So why is that still so quoted? And, and do you think anything's changed since then? The reason that report is still quoted is because it is the most public attention that's ever been paid to medical error. And it caused an incredible public uproar. And President Clinton had these people out on the White House lawn saying, we're going to do this. We're going to cut medical error in half in five years. It really captured public attention. It was everywhere. It was incredible. The second reason that it's worth citing is because it had a specific goal, cut medical error in half. And then, because this was a landmark report, they looked 10 years after the report. Nothing had been done. Right, the error rate had not gone down, and so it's the kind of thing that ten years, twenty years, people look and they say, "Well, have we fulfilled the promise?" Now, how much better are we at protecting patients from harm than we were in 1999? The answer is we're somewhat better. But if you ask, to what extent in 2023? Are we implementing things to keep patients safe that we knew about even as far back as 1999 or that we know about today? How much better are we at implementing it? The answer is not very much. How much did patient safety in general suffer because of COVID-19? The uh, senior physicians at HHS at, at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and the CDC had a uh, opinion piece in the New England Journal of Medicine roughly uh, a year ago, talking about how they'd seen the numbers and all the measures of patient safety, almost all of them went down, particularly with infections. And there's been others as well who've looked at how patient safety has gone down post-COVID. And yes, people were stressed. And yes, there was a lot of reasons for that. But before COVID, hospitals were 
saving money by not hiring enough infection control nurses, uh, not others who are expert in, in infectionists, right? And so even before COVID, even before the financial stress, even before the clinical stress, even before all the talk about burnout, there was not enough of the resources devoted to preventing infections that should have been. You have a pandemic, when you have stress, we have financial stress, of course, patient safety is going to suffer. Of course, infections are going to suffer. But you haven't set up the culture for resilience to deal with this to begin with. Sticking with, the, with COVID and patient safety, telehealth really uh, took up a lot of slack. Uh, and it, it's been extended. The flexibilities that were afforded telehealth have been exp- extended to December 24, I believe. So in terms of patient safety, what do you, how do you view telehealth? Well, telehealth is interesting because in terms of patient safety, we have a lot of information about what happens in the hospital. But of course, care has been moving outside the hospital for decades. And we have very little information about patient safety in the outpatient environment. Now, on the one hand, it's less dangerous to see your doctor uh, because uh, you've got an itch you want to explain than to be in the hospital because, you know, you've got a skin condition that requires surgery, right? But still, we don't monitor it. With telehealth, there's two elements. One is the routine stuff that's being done via telehealth. But now, yesterday, I was on a conference uh, about the growing use of hospital at home, right, where we take severe people and we put them in the home and we monitor them remotely via telehealth. We don't really know anything about safety outside the hospital environment very much. And except for the obvious things with telehealth, right, your connection breaks down while your doctor's talking to you, or it gets garbled and something like that, right? We don't know anything much about patient safety and and telehealth. Now, where there is an opportunity for telehealth to make care better is that some of the telehealth companies are putting in evidence-based guidelines for the physicians. And so even though that's not patient safety in the sense of uh, an error, it can help prevent error, an error in sort of what you want to do, even though it's not patient safety in that classic sense, you're given the wrong drug or whatever. It is patient safety in the sense of protecting you from harm from a misdiagnosis or from prescribing the wrong medication or from prescribing the wrong therapy. So by having evidence-based guidelines in place, telehealth may, in fact, protect patients from harm, even though they won't know it. And, and you, you mentioned how healthcare has been moving out of the hospitals for uh, decades. Pharmacies. Pharmacies were very involved in, uh, in the, through the, the pandemic. Now, pharmacies want to be more involved in primary care. The uh, organizations that represent primary care physicians are not too thrilled with that idea. It seems like it's a classic turf war. Um, is patient safety an issue of that that enters into this one? When you talk about primary care that's being given alternative sites, uh, there are a lot of question marks. On the one hand, it can provide access in ways that you simply couldn't get waiting for your doctor. And in many, many cases, an individual other than a physician can do the correct diagnosis and treatment. But, and this is a big but, is the pharmacist newly trained? What are you asking the pharmacist to do in the scope of their license? Uh, 
How much do you have systems in place to make sure that things are done right? And so while in theory, having primary care being done by non-physicians can be quite safe, quite useful, better access, lower cost, the question is whether some of the pharmacy chains and retailers and all the rest can find the kind of workforce that they need to make this work safely or whether they're just going to find someone who has the right diploma, put them through a quick training course and say, look, here's a primary care site. We don't know. What I think is most important is to realize that we're doing harm that can be prevented and we need to change systems of care without making any individual feel guilty. We need hospitals and physicians to be committed to buying computerized trigger tools and computerized hand hygiene surveillance tools that can make patients safer. I understand the system is stressed now, but we need to go back to first do no harm as the first priority, not something that we only do if the balance sheet tells us it's a good idea. Michael Millison, thank you so much for joining us here at Podnosis. Thank you. I appreciate it, Frank. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, Wednesday, March 8th, is International Women's Day. So be sure to honor the women in your life, celebrate their achievements, champion positive change that advances women, and we'll be doing the same. The entire show will feature some amazing journalists, a lawyer, and the founder of a health tech startup, all women talking about the important topics of neurodiversity and the opioid crisis. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat. Thank you.